Hey there. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. The Spirit of the Law. This is where we are in the Sermon on the Mount series. I invite you, if you have a Bible, please to turn to Matthew chapter 5. The small snippets of verses that I will have for you on the screen don't fully capture the entire passage that we'll preach from today. And so it's good for you to be able to look at the entire scope of what we're looking at in God's Word. As I've mentioned in the past, I'll mention again, if any of you need a Bible and don't have one, please come and mention that to us after the service because we'll make sure you, you have one. We think it's vitally important. The spirit of the law and radical purity, verses 27 through 30. I don't know about you, but sometimes things that are difficult for us to comprehend seem a little distant if they don't happen close to home. You know, the tsunami that happened a few years ago, it was awful, it was devastating. We saw pictures on the news of people being swept by this tidal wave up around hotels and things. But we didn't know anybody, I didn't. I didn't know anybody who was actually there at the time and who might have been in harm's way. And so there's just sort of a little bit of a, I don't know, a shield that we can put up for ourselves to keep ourselves at a distance because it would just be too hard to to feel everything that would be felt. I've sort of felt that way a little bit about impurity. Until last year, it started to really strike closer to home. Infidelity and pornography, some other things that people struggle with today, sexual lust, has become such a problem in our culture that it has reached epidemic proportions. And it struck close to home when I got an email just about a year ago from a friend of mine back in my home state of Arizona. I won't mention this person's name, but they said, you know so-and-so, you actually ministered with him for a short time at a church when you were going to college. He said, you're going to be reading some things probably in the paper about him. And I just want you to know that he and his family need a lot of prayer right now. And it just grieved me to hear that because I knew the sincerity and the seriousness of the tone of his email meant that it must have been devastating. And unfortunately, it really was. This guy had had a stellar ministry career as one of the sharpest, uh, most God-fearing persons I had known in leadership in a large, well-known church in Phoenix, Arizona. He'd celebrated 25 years And they'd thrown a big party for him. And a few months later, he threw all of that away because of sexual infidelity. I won't go into any of the details. They're really too sordid to recount. But there was something that happened in his life that got twisted. And it came out at a time that was so embarrassing to him and his family and the church. I was proud of the way the the church stood behind him. They said, obviously, we're going to let him step down as he gets the help he needs. But we want him to know that we have our arm around him and we're going to walk him through the recovery that he needs to have because he has a problem and we're here to help him through that problem. They handled it well, but the consequences, I'm sure, have been horrific for that man. It's just a little too close to home. 
I saw online about a Fuller Institute study. Fuller is a seminary out on the West Coast. And just five years ago, they did a rather comprehensive study. They captured, I think, uh, the input from over 1,500 pastors and church leaders. I was shocked to see that 30% of this microcosm of what probably is represented thousands of times over in this country, 30% had admitted to either being in or having had an extramarital affair. 30% of that 1,500 people, that represents about 450 people. I was shocked. I had to go back and reread some things and do some corroboration because I thought, no, surely that can't be right. And yet it was. Many of those were either divorced or separated and headed toward divorce because of the aftermath of what had gone on because of that. The problem is obviously immense, and it is devastating to everyone involved. And it doesn't just stop with the person who's involved or their spouse. It has far-reaching effects to so many people. Well, Christ spoke to that. Things haven't changed much over time, have they? It seems like he knew what people struggle with. And even when he was speaking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27... He gave an exact, not just word-for-word, but letter-for-letter quote of one of the commandments in Exodus chapter 20. He said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And they had. They were very familiar with that. People knew what the Old Testament law was all about, the Mosaic law from Moses. He was quoting exactly that seventh commandment. But they had narrowly defined it as being the outward manifestation, which we can describe as adultery, So that many of them could pontificate over other people and say, yes, well, I haven't done that, and therefore I'm okay. Their narrow definition, which limited the scope of that sin to only if you've overstepped the final line in a series of a whole bunch of little gradations getting to that point. Starting with the look, and a second look, and a third look, and then a lustful thought, and then a leer, and more lustful thoughts, and then fantasies leading up to finally stepping out a little bit, and then there was some transference emotionally. It's a whole series of things that had to happen before the adultery took place. And so they could say, with a clear conscience, hey, I haven't done that, so I'm okay. And Jesus decides to speak right to the heart of the matter, just as he did about anger, as we talked about last week. In verse 28, he says, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That statement that President Jimmy Carter was blasted for when he spoke on this subject publicly. Jesus uh, broadens the scope of the definition of what adultery encompasses so that if you really think about it, who hasn't done that? Wouldn't all of us be guilty at some point of having a lustful thought or a leering look at somebody unless we're so pure and we're so young that we haven't reached the age of accountability and we really don't know what we're doing yet? Notice that Jesus does not forbid the God-given attraction, which is a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful gift, as long as it's kept within the boundaries. I mentioned this a couple of years ago. Uh, that another pastor, and I can't remember which one that I read, I wish I could quote him, he was saying that uh, this wonderful gift of physical intimacy, if kept within marriage, is a wonderful thing, just like a fire is kept within the fireplace. And on these cold nights that we've been having, when it dips down to about zero degrees, isn't it great to have a nice fire roaring across the mantle? just warms you right up. But it's not so helpful if the fire gets outside the fireplace. You can burn the house down. 
I thought that's an apt analogy because when this wonderful gift is taken outside the parameters of what Jesus is teaching us about that, it can destroy a household. So Jesus doesn't forbid the God-given attraction toward one another that man and woman can have. He forbids the deep-seated lust that can build up in a person that winds up taking that gift outside the fireplace, so to speak. We're all guilty of this at that point if we're using his standard. Good example is King David. You know the story, most of you. He probably should have been out with his men at a time when they were out making war. And for some reason, King David decided he wanted to kick back and chill out. That's the modern, unparaphrased version. In 2 Samuel, we see that story that it started with just a look. He was up on the the rooftop. He looked down and he saw Bathsheba. She was out there probably bathing. And rather than recognizing instantly there was a problem and for him to turn around and say, oh, I don't need to be looking at that. I'm going to head back in and start uh, doing some reading or doing something more constructive. He decided to look a little longer. And the look became a leer and all those stages started to set in all the way to the point that he decided he needed to make Bathsheba his own even though she was already married to a man named Uriah. And because he had power and authority, he decided to have a few of his men take Uriah right out to the front lines of the battle And then say, when the battle gets really thick, when the arrows are flying and the people are just really in the thick of this uh, battle, pull back and leave Uriah unprotected. In a sense, he was like a hitman. He signed Uriah's death warrant by what he did for them. He's just as guilty as if he had held the axe himself and cut off Uriah's head. All that because he started to leer after what was not his. That's lust. It's okay to have a a God-given love between a woman and a man within marriage, but when it becomes lust, it starts to go outside what God has scripted for us in His Word, and it's destructive. In this case, it became extremely destructive. And the consequences lived on for a long time afterwards. Even though David is called a man after God's own heart, there was still a tremendous rift between he and his son Absalom. It's a a lengthy story. But it's one that shows us that even though there is forgiveness, consequences can last a lifetime. Jesus is trying to teach us that we need to deal with temptation really early on when it's still just in the germination stage, just a seed of a thought. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The Bible tells us that all of us are tempted. There's not a one of us who doesn't get hit with that little fiery dart of temptation once in a while. But we can start dealing with this while it's still just in a very small temptation phase. No temptation has seized you, says 1 Corinthians 10, 13, except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, notice not if you are, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. This is perhaps one of the greatest perverted verses in the Bible. It's twisted by people who say, well, the Bible says flat out, God will never give you more than you can handle. They're often citing this verse when they say that. The Bible doesn't say that. In my lifetime, I've recognized that there have been a lot of times when God has allowed things into my life that I cannot handle. That's why we need the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, because He can handle what I cannot. We need Jesus Christ to fight these battles. We can't do it in our own will, in our own strength. He says that we need to deal with temptation radically. Now, do you know what uh, certain different figures of speech are like? This is one of those figures of speech that's meant to be strongly emphasized. 
And when Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Some of us might say we're literalists. I am in many points of Scripture. But this is one of those figures of speech that's meant to be exaggerated in order to make a very strong point. As though, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. I saw one earlier this week. I can't think of any that come to my mind right offhand. But you know what it's like when you make an exaggeration. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. There's a good exaggeration. Well, Jesus is not saying that you should reach in and literally gouge your eye out, but he's saying you should treat sin at the germination stage, at the thought stage, so radically that you could act as if you had gouged your eye out. In other words, take your eyes away from that. He says deal with it so drastically and immediately as though you had been diagnosed with a deadly cancer that's growing, let's say, uh, on your pancreas. And you discover that the doctor doesn't say, yeah, you know, that's kind of bad, but you can sort of live with it for a couple of months. It's all right. I'd say, no, man, take it out. <laughs> Get it out of there. Do it tomorrow morning if we can schedule it. Let's deal with it right away because this is going to kill me. That's the kind of emphasis that Jesus is bringing to bear when he says, if your right eye offends you, gouge it out. Don't play around with this. It's like playing with fire that's going to burn down the house. He says, just treat it as though you need to remove yourself from the source of your temptation. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, John Stott, who's sort of this nice or English fellow from London, the All Saints Church, you know, the kind of fellow that talks like that a lot. He was mentioning how this would be, and, and I love the way he put it because it was more eloquent than I am. He was using that wonderful term, mortification. And he says, the only way mortification can happen is as if you treat it as though you are literally handicapped and cannot even make it to the place where the temptation is stationed. I thought, that's good. That's a good mental image for me. I need to become self-inflicted, mortified, handicapped, if that's necessary. And I mean that in the best possible sense, because I can't even drag my carcass over there to where I'm going to be tempted. Jesus says, just don't do it. Stay away from the temptation. Be better, he says in the rest of that verse, for you to be cast into hell. Or better not to be cast into hell. Better to avoid hell without your eye and without your hand than to be cast into hell with all your body parts. Deal with temptation radically. Verses 29 and 30. Remove your eyes from the source. Practically speaking, that may mean for some of us who have been tempted in different areas, move the computer. Literally say, I'm going to set it up right here in the common area where the rest of my family gathers so that there are always eyes, always on that screen so that no one person is off in a room by himself or herself so that they can be tempted to look at things on that computer that we don't want them to be looking at. It may mean that you need to have an escape plan and that you're going to literally physically stand up and say, oh, here's my escape plan. I'm starting to feel those darts of temptation. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go and change my mindset and do something else to distract myself into something that's productive so that I'm no longer tempted and literally leave the room. You need to have an escape plan. Just as Joseph, when Potiphar's wife put the moves on him and he, he fleed, he flew, he, he ran away. <laughs> He even left his garment because she was grabbing a hold of it and he just let her pull it right off of him and he took off. He was the first flasher in the Bible. <laughs> but God rewarded him for dealing with something that drastically and that quickly by fleeing from that temptation. Temptation that starts to lead to a fantasy world, here's a, a something that a good counselor friend of mine told me about probably 10 years ago when we were talking about some of these passages together. I was meeting with 
Three Ministers and a Counselor. Sounds like a good movie title or the beginning of a really bad joke. (laughs) But we were meeting together on a regular basis because all of us were going through some difficult times in our lives. We each had parents that were aging. My father was dying from Parkinson's. Others were at similar stages. And we needed some accountability and we needed some support for one another. And one of the guys said, you know, I've discovered this is something that I tell my clients all the time. And I'm going to give this to you for free. I could charge you $60 an hour to do this, but you get it for free today. Fantasize reality. If you start to feel yourself getting tempted, rather than going down the road of this wonderful Hollywood version of how this is going to turn out, when you think of yourselves walking through a bed of rose petals in this candlelit room to have this wonderful time with this person that you shouldn't be with, fantasize what's going to happen two months after that when the spouse finds out. And you see that it's just going to break her heart. And then the in-laws find out. And your parents find out. And your kids find out. And then you separate. And you have to find another apartment. Then you've got two sets of households to support. And you can't pay your bills already. How are you going to pay for two households instead of one? And then there's the divorce proceedings. And then there's the paternity suits. And then there's all these things in the court cases. And it just becomes overblown until a year from now. You're thinking, how did I get into this mess of my life? Fantasize that the next time you start going down that road in your mind because that's reality. And it's messy. That's why I can clearly say with a clear conscience, I know that it was love that motivated God to say, He hates divorce. He hates it. I've said that before in this church as well. My sister went through a tragic divorce. And we all hated it. It was an awful thing to see her have to go through that pain. Now, here's the other thing, though. If anybody anyone has been through that road, there's always forgiveness. There's always enough grace to cover anything that people may have gone through. Always, always, always. Deal with temptation radically. Make a covenant with at least one accountability partner. I love this verse, James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I have found it so necessary in my life to have regular accountability sessions with people who are my peers who can be really honest and open with one another and pray for one another. And God's blessed me with some wonderful accountability partner men who are really strong about that. They'll call me up in the middle of the week and say, I got a story for you. Have you got time? And they'll tell about how an answer to prayer, that something we've been praying about earlier that week. And they'll say, God answered that prayer right now. Or he'll say, I've got this person that we're praying for, and they're just heading to court right now. Please pray for them right there at this moment. And it's just kind of on the fly. It's real conversational. It's real uh, unstructured. But folks, it's one of the best things you can do. I'm tapping my foot for emphasis because I have no pulpit to pound on. It's one of the best things you can do to remain free from temptation is to get yourself in with a good accountability partner or more than one. And then confess to each other. There's this one guy, he'll tell me once in a while, maybe once every three or four months, he'll say, you know, I'm really grateful that God protected me on this because it didn't go any further than the thought level, but I had some impure thoughts this week, and I just wanted to confess that to you so that you can be praying for me. You know, that takes guts. Men, you know how gutsy it takes for us to be able to admit that to another guy? And in some circles, they might might think, that sounds really mamby-pamby. Because this is so foreign to so many people because our culture has surrounded us with impurity that they just think it's weird that we would even try to do this kind of stuff. But I'm telling you, it sure does work. 
And when it does, your marriage is better because there's a trust level that results in so much intimacy that you can't imagine apart from that. Make a covenant with at least one accountability partner. And here's something else that I learned about recently. You can put technology to work for you instead of against you. There's a thing, and I had to check it out because I was very cautious when I first heard about it. It's called the triplexchurch.com. And I thought, whoop, whoop, whoop. Triplexchurch.com, I'm not going to even type that into my computer. What are they talking about? It's actually a website dedicated to helping people escape from temptation and to remain pure. And there's one thing on it that's actually the free version of this thing called 3X Watch. That if you were to go to triplex.com, triplexchurch.com, don't go to triplex.com. Go to triplexchurch.com and type in 3X Watch in the search place. There is a free software you can download. It's kind of like a filter, but it does something different than that. You have to first go and find somebody or bodies. I think it allows you to go up to several who are your accountability people. And let's say, just for an example, if I were to do this with my wife, Joy, I'd say, Joy, I want to sign up for this thing. And it means that if I go to any of the sites on the thousands that they've listed on their filters, it will send you an email at the end of the week and list the sites that I have been visiting. Now, there's some problems with that. What if somebody else comes and uses your computer and you're not there? You know, it can be a little tricky. So you have to be very cautious how you're utilizing this specific kind of software. But it can be so amazing if you know, I'm tempted, but if I go there, there's going to be this report coming out on the other end. And they're going to start asking me, "Uh, what were you doing and where were you doing it on the computer the other day? I think that, What I'm trying to get out the most is that we need to be so honest and open with people that we trust that we can talk about anything with them when it comes to purity. Because if we know we're going to have that embarrassing conversation, even if I have nipped it in the bud and gotten it right there in the little thought life before it's gone into some big fantasy, if I can even tell my wife, honey, pray for me this week. I don't know where my brain is going, but I'm just struggling this week. It's so good to have accountability. It just makes life so much better for everybody. Now, here's my most practical sermon application ever. (laughs) If you're already into this kind of stuff, get out. Can I be any more clear than that? Just stop it. Get away from whatever the temptation might be because your life is going to turn for the better if you'll just get out. If you've already failed... Get help. There's so many places where you can get help. There are actually message boards on that triplexchurch.com where people would say, please pray for me. There's a prayer board. You can say, I'm praying for my prayer partners, even online, to do that. I think it's more important to meet weekly or even more often with real, live, face-to-face people because you can be praying through this stuff. But get yourself somebody trusted and be cautious where you talk about this stuff. Don't go out to the big boy and sit there in a booth and talk about all this stuff with people at the next booth going, wow, you know, find a good discreet place to do that, but be honest with one another so you can really talk openly about things that will keep you from being impure. And then if you felt guilty, you know there's a cure for guilt? Stop doing the stuff that's making you feel guilty. How simple is that? And don't we all know it intuitively? I mean, isn't it just common sense? There's so many people that would come to a counselor and say, well, I just can't stop this feeling of guilt. Well, are you still in the sin? Yes. Duh. 
Of course you're going to feel guilty. You're still doing the sin that's causing you to feel guilty. Stop it. I mean, come on. This is why I think Jesus got right down to brass tacks when he was speaking about this kind of stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. He knew what motivated men's hearts, and he was being very, very clear with them. Don't give up in your battle for purity. Folks, I'm going to tell you, all of us are going to battle things in our spiritual walk at some level. And some of us are going to battle some of these things for the rest of our lives. That's why Romans 7 exists in the Bible when Paul said, man, I find myself doing the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the stuff that I know I need to be doing, that I'd like to be doing. Wretched man that I am. And then you get to Romans 8. And it's wonderful because there is where we find the forgiveness. After you've said, yeah, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to get on the right path. From this day forward, I'm going to live as the new creature in Christ that he's made me to be. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mortification of flesh doesn't happen through willpower. You don't need self-discipline. You need discipleship. There's a difference. When I have attempted to do things in my own power, I have failed so miserably. And when I've surrounded myself with godly people to mentor me and support me as disciples of Christ, God has strengthened me. Discipleship is more important than discipline. And then... Give yourself plenty of opportunities to get into God's Word because that's how we start hearing the voice of God because He speaks to us the loudest through His written Word so that the Holy Spirit just becomes part of our operating system and part of our filtering system. And know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have stopped and you're moving forward and you know you're living in Christ, He'll remove that guilt over time. He'll remove it. You keep reminding yourself of that. Keep walking in the light And keep quoting Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And remember, you're not alone in your struggle. There's no temptation that's been given that's not common to every single one of us. We're human beings. All of us are tempted. Now, from this day forward, here's what I'd like to really challenge each of us to do. Just make this simple pledge. First, I will live as a new creation in Christ. I will engage in radical purity. I will make a covenant with myself, with God, and with accountability partners. I will eliminate guilt by eliminating behavior that leads to guilt. And I will accept forgiveness and move forward. Let's pray together. Father, this is such a big issue these days. And I'm saddened that the church seems to be so deeply affected by this. We don't seem to be doing a real good job at capturing what you had in mind when you preached this kind of stuff from the Sermon on the Mount. And I pray that we will start living, each one of us individually, in such a way that other people are going to recognize this person is different. I pray that you're going to transform lives by your Holy Spirit. And that as we live with the kind of purity you have in mind, we'll just start to sense your approval, your anointing, your blessing, your arm around us, your hands on our head saying, well done. I approve of this. And there's so many wonderful rewards, not because we're doing it for reward, but you just reward those who honor you. And I pray that we'll be able to live that way by living in Christ. Make us a pure people, a holy priesthood of believers. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.